0: This morning we're going to continue our series that we've been going through looking at the church. Two weeks ago we began our series by looking at six different foundational principles of what the church is. That week we saw how the church exists in that the church is a people instituted according to God's will and saved through Christ's work. We also saw what the church does. The church is a people set apart for God's worship, mutually edified by his word, sent to shine in this world, all for God's glory. Those are the foundations we must know as we are seeking to build up our church according to God's design. As we are looking to be a church that is a good representation of the body of Christ, we need to know these foundations last week we talked about who the church is we talked about how everything goes back to our identity in christ we we saw that in christ we are a new person and god tasked the local church to affirm and oversee our new identity in christ we are also part of a new people and god instituted the local church as the people the christian is accountable to and responsible for We saw that in Christ we have a new mission, and that God established the local church to visually represent and clearly proclaim his message in this fallen world. This morning we're going to continue our series by asking the question, how is the church protected? What protects the church in this world? And truthfully, when we're talking about this topic, we could spend the next year talking about all of the ways in which God offers protection to the church. But specifically, we're going to talk about the elements of discipleship and discipline. Now, before we're going to get into that specific topic of how discipleship and discipline are for our protection and the protection of our church, I want to talk about this whole topic of protection i want to frame the question for us so that we see the need of the protection in order for us to do that we're going to talk first about why we need protection second we're going to look at the protection that god offers third we're going to see how the church protects us and then finally we're going to look at how we protect the church so here's the first question why do we need protection why why do we start with that question why not let let's just jump immediately to what is the protection why do we start first at why do we need protection because we won't seek protection from threats we don't think exist History is full of accounts of those who suffered and often even died because they didn't believe the danger was real. I was talking to my wife and I was trying to think of examples of this and all of the examples were from my wife and it was awesome. I'm like, hey, I can't think of anything. And she gave me three examples right off off the top of her head. The first uh, in history, uh, Mount St. Helens. They knew it was getting ready to blow up there were lots of signs showing that it was going to erupt but one individual mr truman said no it's not real he had his lodge that he had owned and worked there for with his wife for 40 years and he said this is all blown out of proportion not pun intended It's all, it's all too much. It's not going to happen. His family begged him to leave, but he said, no, this isn't real. And he died. He thought he would have enough time. He didn't think the danger was real. We can look at wars and different stories in history and see that to be the case. When people don't believe the threat is genuine, when they don't think the danger is real, they're not going to take the necessary steps. We can see that in the Bible. Think of Noah. Noah's building an ark. Why? Because he thinks what's about to happen is real. The world looks at him and mocks him. Think of Lot. Lot goes and and doesn't really see the danger of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so he keeps on getting closer and closer and closer, not realizing the danger, until God comes and, and sends the angels, and they tell him, you need to leave. This is real. This is dangerous. Run. Don't look back. What about his wife? Did she think that the danger, that the threat was real? What did she do? They're running away. She looks back. She died. If we don't start first by talking about why this danger is real, if we don't talk about why we need protection, then all of the things that we're going to talk about, of these are the necessary steps, we're not going to latch onto them because we don't see the need. So what danger are we facing? Is it real? Within Scripture, we see two main enemies to the Christian. One is the flesh, and the second is the devil and spiritual forces against us. Here's the problem. In our culture, neither is seen as either real or a real problem. Consider the flesh. What is the flesh? Galatians 5, 19-20 says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and the list goes on and on of all these things that are the work of the flesh. What is it talking about? It's talking about our sinful nature. It's talking about our internal corrupt desires. Now how does the world see the the threat of the flesh? Is it genuine? No. That's not even a danger. It's your identity. All the things that God points to sexual immorality, all of these things of the list impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, jealousy those aren't problems. That's who you really are. That's you. And in some sense, they're right. That is you. But that's why we need a Savior. what about the devil our other enemy is he real yes in john 17 verse 15 it's the high priestly prayer that christ is praying over his disciples and christ asks for protection from satan and when she says in uh, verse 15 i do not ask that you take them out of the world he's praying to the father but that you keep them from the evil one jesus treated satan as real We know that in his temptation. Jesus wasn't caught off guard. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? The devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. How does the world see the devil? As a Halloween costume as someone who walks around with a pitchfork as a fairy tale as a myth as the boogeyman that's under your bed to scare you into doing the right thing see the temptation is that there's for us is that there's no enemy here and if there's no enemy there's no war or danger but the enemy is real and so is the war The flesh is our sinful nature, and in Christ, though, we are given a new nature, but we still struggle with the flesh. The spirit and the flesh are at war, Galatians 5, 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You want to do them, but the Spirit is opposed to them. There is a war within you between the Spirit that God has given and the flesh that we still desire. Those who don't see the flesh as real won't acknowledge the war. They will say, that why are you trying to suppress who you truly are? Give in. Follow your heart. But our hearts are desperately wicked. How about the devil? Is there a war there? The devil is the great opposer of God and his plan. He is at war with everything good, every good thing that God has done and is doing. He stands opposed to God in every way. There is no common ground between Satan and God in which they say, you know what? Let's agree... On this one aspect, we can both agree that that's a good thing. Let's leave that one alone. There's none of that. In every single thing that God has done, Satan opposes it. He twists it. He tries to destroy it. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What is the imagery in that verse? It's a war. Why do you need armor? Because you are in a war. The world doesn't acknowledge Satan, and so the war that is around them is explained as just the natural course of events. Eh, Sometimes these things just happen. But the enemy is real. The war is happening, and the casualties are rampant we can see casualties of war within the flesh in Romans 8 verse 7 through 8 it's uh, Paul is talking about the flesh and he says for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God that's a casualty of that there's casualties of the war with the devil. In 1 Peter 5, it says, uh, 5.8, it says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is serious. We could look through Scripture and see countless examples of casual, the casualties of war. So many examples in Scripture of even heroes in the faith who succumbed to the desires of their flesh. Think of David. So many examples within the church where the schemes of the devil set in and it rips the churches apart. Think of, for, of the, the Corinthian church. But we don't need to look just at Scripture to figure this out. Everywhere around us are examples of casualties of the war we're facing. Keith prayed about mothers. Do we think that mothers are under attack in this war? Absolutely. God says that children are a blessing. The world under Satan's authority will say they are an inconvenience and sometimes even a curse. God says being a mother is a privilege. The world under Satan will say that it's oppression, it's slavery. It's keeping you from doing what you were made to do. Moms, you are under attack from this world. And you're also under attack from your own flesh. Being a mom is hard. Being a mom requires sacrifice. And your flesh isn't going to want to do that. Do we see casualties in motherhood around us? Yes. Yes. Because the enemy is real, the war is real, and there are real casualties. But we we don't need to just look at motherhood. Just even think about what's happening this week. Again, Keith prayed about this. What is happening right now with the sanctity of life? God ordained life. God gives life. It is only under his authority that life can be taken away. And there are elements in, which, in scripture in which God explains, yes, in these specific circumstances, there are punishment against in which life can be taken away. But that is all according to his word. Do we see casualties? Against the sanctity of life? Millions of casualties. Millions of lives who are taken away because the devil is attacking life. Now I just want to say a quick aside because this is something that is happening right now in our society. I want us to understand that the only casu- the casualties of, of the war against life are not just the babies. The casualties of abortion are also the mothers. So often when we talk about things like this, it can get confusing because what it seems like is that our enemy is the world. The world is not our enemy. The world is our mission. The casualties of those who who go and choose abortion, they are casualties of people who have fallen under the schemes of the devil. They are people who have decided that the lies of the devil are true. They need our help too. I just want to encourage you and in, 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 in should we stand up against abortion? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a tragedy. It's a travesty. It's awful. We stand opposed to it. But who are we standing against? The devil, the flesh, the lies of the prince of the power of the world. We are not standing against the world. We are standing for the world. They don't see these things. We want to stand for them because they don't know better. They've fallen under the schemes. Let's continue talking about these casualties. Again, we, we see that in mothers. We see that in, in children. But again, we see this in every area. We can look at our church. This year, Pastor Billy and I have had different things in which we are dealing with things because they're the results of sin. There are casualties. There are people in pain because of the flesh, because of the devil. Many of you have had immense attack. This is serious. We can look in our own lives. We can look back to times in which we failed and we we all bear scars, casualties from the war. Brothers and sisters, this is serious. We are facing a powerful enemy in a terrible battle with catastrophic casualties. So what do we do? In light of the enemy... In light of the war, in light of the casualties, how are we protected? Praise God that he offers protection. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians 6, we have one of the main passages that deals with spiritual warfare. And let's read verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. What we see in this passage is that God provides armor for us to wear individually. God is not unaware of the war we are in. He provides protection in that he provides armor. Put on the armor. Why? Because we face a powerful enemy. That's in verse 12. Because you are under attack so that you may be able to withstand and stand firm. Now we're not going to spend a ton of time looking at how we as individuals are meant to wear the armor that's not the topic for today's message if you have more questions about that there's about 20 women who just went through a 10 12 week study on what is the armor of god have a conversation with them read the passage look at it you are called to individually put on the armor but I want to point out some things about this passage that I had not seen until just recently. What I've always heard it, it, with, uh, where it's been presented, and, and I'm not sure that they presented it this way so much as I heard it this way, is work harder. Wear the armor well. Do this. Strive for this. What's the problem? You're not going to. We don't wear the armor perfectly, we don't wear the armor perpetually. How do I know that? Because every scar you bear from sin comes from a time where you either were not wearing it perfectly, as in all the pieces, or you weren't wearing it perpetually. You got tired. You took it off to rest. You thought you were safe, but you weren't. So what do we do? Because it's a real enemy. It's a real war. There's real casualties. And if this is the protection that we are given the armor to wear individually, but we know our own flaws and we know that we're not going to do it completely, what's our hope? Now please understand, we should strive to do this. This is written for the individual to wear these things. We need to strive for that. But there's something greater that I hadn't seen before. Whose armor are we to put on what does it say be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God verse 13 therefore take up the whole armor of God when I was you know young junior high you just want to get right to the armor let's talk about this this is cool this is boy stuff let's do that but wait is this armor of God meaning hey it's godly attributes it's things that God would like or is it the armor of God, meaning it is his armor? It's the second. The imagery that Paul is pointing to, more than the armor of Rome, is the armor of the Old Testament. It's the armor that God presented in isaiah 59 verse 17 it says this he and the he there is the lord he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak whose armor is it it's god's armor in the entire course of human history Has there ever been anyone who has never borne the scars from the flesh and never borne scars from the devil? Who has never had the casualties? There is only one who could claim that. And yet he still bears scars. Why? Where did his scars come from? Was it that he did not wear the armor? No, Christ wore the armor completely, perfectly, perpetually. How does he still have scars? Because he wore the armor on our behalf. He fought against Satan for our behalf. And we might think that his scars are marks of defeat, but they're not. They're marks of of victory. Hebrews two fourteen Since they are the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. First John f- 5, 4 through 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What does this mean for us? Because Christ wore the armor completely, our victory is guaranteed. Christ won the war. Am I going to fail in wearing the armor all the time? But he wore it perfectly, he wore it completely. Through his victory is my victory guaranteed. How? Because through faith, I am now in Christ. But here's the question. If Christ's victory is guaranteed, if Christ has won the war, why are we still fighting? Why are we still having casualties? Here's what we need to understand. Christ has already dealt the death blow, pun intended that time. Christ dealt the death blow for the war. It is already guaranteed, but the war is still happening. A couple weeks ago for Easter, we talked about 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Christ will reign until everything is under his feet. All enemies are under him. That is still happening. Now, what is our main protection? It's the work of Christ. And this is what you need to understand. The foundation of every protection that God offers us is the work of Christ. Without the work of Christ, you do not have protection without the work of Christ, without faith in Jesus, in Christ alone, then you are not going to be victorious over the flesh. You will not be victorious over uh, the devil. The foundation for every protection, what is the foundation for us individually wearing the armor? It's Christ. But again, the question, what do we do right now in the battle? Because Christ has won the war, but there is still the battle. There are still casualties. We know that. We see that in our own lives. This is what is so incredible is that God offers another protection because God provides Christ who wore the armor completely. God also provides the church who wears the armor corporately. One of the things that I had never noticed in this passage on, in Ephesians 6 that talks about the armor is that every single pronoun and every verb is Plural. Every single one of them is we. All of the you words in there are plural you. You are going to fail. I am going to fail. I'm not going to wear it perfectly. I'm not going to wear it perpetually. But the body of Christ wears it corporately. Within Ephesians, one of the main themes is unity. Ephesians 4, 4-6 says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Later we see that God gives gifts to the church in verse 12. Uh, Celinda read it this morning. To, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body. It equips us. The body of Christ comes alongside and we are built up together in love. So who wears the armor of Christ? The body of Christ. This is the protection that God offers us and it's the protection I want to look at now. How does the church protect? How does the church protect us? It protects us by equipping the saints with the armor. It protects us by building up the body. It protects by helping everyone attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is how the church protects us, by making us more like Jesus. Again, who is the only one who wore the armor perfectly? Jesus. So how, who is our example? Who is our goal in this battle? Who do we want to be like? Jesus. The church protects us when it makes us more like Christ. What do we call that? Discipleship. Discipleship is the process in which we follow Jesus. It's the process in which we become more like him. Now, one of the difficulties that we have in talking about discipleship is that usually we jump immediately to methodology. How do you do discipleship? There are so many classes, there's classes that I've been part of, and the whole thing about discipleship is, this is what discipleship is. But really, what they're defining is, this is how discipleship is done. They're not saying what discipleship is, more they're focusing on how to do discipleship. Now part of that seems like a good thing. Yeah, this battle's real, we need to get to work, let's do it, let's protect each other, let's go for it. But if you don't understand what discipleship is, if you don't understand why we do discipleship, you're going to get the how wrong. Let me illustrate this real, real quickly, and I'm going to have two volunteers. Stephen, thank you for volunteering. Let's imagine that Stephen has just gone to watch this, this, uh, this show um, a documentary all on being healthy. And in the documentary, it talks about the danger and the, of people who are not healthy and how they die and all of these things about healthy. So now he's like, oh, wow, this is important. He knows why he wants to be healthy. And then let's say that they also explain what it, lo- what it means to be healthy. They give all of these definitions. Now that he understands what and why, he's going to think about how to be healthy. And he knows that it's a wide range of things. And one of the things he wants to work on is calf raises because that's part of the whole body. And so, Stephen, come on up. You're going to do some calf raises. Don't do too many. Go slowly because you'll be here for a while. And now let's imagine we have someone else, another volunteer, Bill Mulligan. And Bill Mulligan has always heard. Go down a couple steps. You're too tall. Um, Bill Mulligan (laughs) has heard. Bill, you can be up here with me. Um, that being healthy is important but he doesn't really know what health being healthy is he doesn't really know why you need to be healthy he's just heard it's important he comes and he sees Stephen and he's like Stephen w- what are you doing and Stephen says I'm being healthy that's being healthy oh well if that's what it is I guess th- I've always heard I'm supposed to do it so then Bill starts doing calf raises just go on your tiptoes Okay, now, right now, if we take a picture of this, does it look similar? Yeah. Right now, they're doing the same thing. We could say, look at that. They're both being healthy. But the next day, do you think Stephen's going to be doing calf raises? No, Stephen's going to go for a run. Go for a run. Because he knows that that's also part of it. Bill comes to the place that they met, and they're like, well, wait wait a second. This is what's being healthy. Stephen's not here. He must have given up. I'm going to keep on doing calf raises. He keeps going. The next day, Stephen's doing something else. He's resting because that's part of being healthy. Bill comes again. He's like, man, Stephen's not here. Either Bill continues for the next five years, and he has bodybuilder calves, <laughs> or he gives up because he doesn't know what and why. He looks at this and he's like, why am I doing this? What's this accomplishing? You can take a seat, thank you. (laughs) Do you see that at the moment, there are times in which when we want to define how, we look at one snapshot and we're like, oh, we're all doing discipleship. But that given time, those two people are going to look vastly different. How often in our churches do we latch on to one how? We latch onto one way of doing ministry, and that ministry is pristine. That ministry is awesome. It's bodybuilder quality. But the rest of the body is anemic. The rest of the body has had no focus. There is no health. I don't care how good your calves look. If your heart is broken, if your muscles are atrophied, it doesn't matter. When we're talking about discipleship, we're not going to talk just straight about here's how you do discipleship. I want every single one of you to have a mentor. Let's do this hierarchy thing. We're going to have our, in our church every single person is going to be mentored by someone and mentor someone else. And so what we're going to do, there's 100 members. We're going to give each one of you a grade 1 through 100. If you're number 50, you can mentor, 49, or mentor 51 through 100 and be mentored by 1 through 49. So often when we're talking about discipleship, we jump immediately to things like that. And I'm not saying that mentorship isn't part of it. It is. But discipleship is much greater than that. What is discipleship? It's following Jesus. Discipleship is the process in which those who are not Christ become like Christ. Let me say that again. Discipleship is the process in which those who are not Christ become like Christ. Jesus called his disciples when he was on earth. In John one forty three, he says to Philip, he finds Philip and says, follow me. Now that's not just physically, that's in every way. Luke 6.40, Jesus says that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's the goal, to be like the teacher. John 8.31, if you abide in my word, what I've said, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 12, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, where I am, there will my servant be also. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Discipleship is the process in which that happened. So why do we do it? One, because of the danger that we've already seen. We need this. We bear scars. We need this process. We need someone to help us wear the armor. But we also, the reason why we do this is because God commanded us to. In Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, the process of discipleship includes both evangelism or salvation as well as the process of becoming more mature or sanctification. Now, we've already, this, for the last two years, we've been talking a lot about evangelism and putting that as a challenge. So this morning, that's not the part that we're going to talk about in the discipleship. But understand, it's part of it. Going and making disciples includes telling others the truth about Christ. They cannot become like tr- Christ if they are not first in Christ. But he says in that, that Matthew 28, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So, how do we disciple within the church? Well, here, here's something I want you to just observe. Who does God give the command in Matthew 28 to? First, the disciples who are right there with him. By extension, to all future disciples, as we read the word of God, it is a commission for us as well. How did the apostles, how did the first disciples decide to accomplish Christ's command? The church. Matthew, or Acts, right away, right in the first chapters of Acts, you see the apostles going out and establishing the church. Not because they created it, but because God instituted the church, which we've seen in Matthew 16. I will build the church, Peter. The gates of hell will not overcome it. And so they go, and they're like, this is what God has given us. The tool that God has given us to make disciples, to grow disciples, is the church. That is where discipleship must happen. Can discipleship happen outside? Sure, but it has to happen within the church. So how do we disciple within the church? And I'm going to just give you some principles. Again, we're not going to jump directly to, let me give you the methods. I want to give you the principles. It's going to look different. If you're questioning later and you're like, well, wait, I, I still am questioning how do I do this? Talk to me. We can figure some of this out. But right now, I want to talk about some of the the principles of discipleship. First of all, discipleship is intentional. When you consider the speed and effectiveness in which the disciples sought to accomplish the Great Commission, it's astounding. The Apostle John dies, and there are churches all across the Roman Empire. One generation. How does that happen? It wasn't because they were like, "Ah, let's just see what, what happens. No, they were Intentional. Colossians 1.28, the Apostle Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The disciples didn't come up with this intentionality. It's intentionality that they saw exemplified in Christ. Christ was so intentional in all that he did. Sometimes we have discussions in discipleship that, oh, discipleship needs to be informal. You do life together. Other people know discipleship needs to be formal. You need to teach them. Well, which is it? Well, look at Christ. Christ did both. Christ had informal and formal. So, so what was the thing that made it discipleship? Intentionality. Christ was never surprised that there were people that were being discipled by him whether intentional, informal, or formal. The main thing is it has to be intentional. We don't just say, you know what, I'm going to disciple people by how I live. Does that happen? Sure. Can we evangelize people by they see our testimony? There's elements of that, but it also requires words, intentionality, to be focused, to have a purpose. Second, so we disciple intentionally. Second, discipleship is towards Christ, through Christ. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim, and it says the goal is so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. But what does it say at the end? Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We have both sides. It's towards Christ. That's the goal. It's through Christ. It's his power. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Third, discipleship is done out of love. Hebrews 10, uh, Dr. Sayer referenced this at the beginning. Let us consider how to stir up one another in love. Ephesians 4:15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Jumping down to verse 16, that when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Why do we disciple each other? Because we love each other. We don't want to see them as a casualty of war. I love you. I want to see you wearing the armor. Fourth, discipleship is in the spirit of humility. Second Corinthians 4 7 says we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's not us to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This isn't coming from us, as we saw in Colossians, it's all through his power. As we see in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Philippians 2 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. We should never disciple from a position of pride because we haven't done anything. We come humbly to our brothers and sisters, pointing them to Christ who did everything. Now be careful with a false application of humility. Sometimes a false application of humility looks like this. Who am I to help other people? They are so much better than me. I, I have nothing to offer them i've struggled with that that's not humility it's pride disguised as humility why what are we saying i have nothing to offer them you will never have something to offer them you have christ to offer them and that is something that there is no person in our church doesn't need when we say I can't do this, I have nothing to offer, then you're again, it's pride because you're thinking you're the solution. You're not the solution. It's Christ. Every single one of us here should be being discipled and discipling others. It's our responsibility. Do it intentionally. Do it towards Christ through Christ. Do it out of love. Do it with humility. But we also, on the other side of that coin, is that's how we disciple. But that's also there's elements, and then how are we discipled? Again, intentionally. So often there are people who are like, well, no one discipled me. No one, no one put any effort. Did you put effort out? Did you find people? Did you ask them questions? Did you say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I'm having a hard time wearing the armor. Can you help me? Be intentional. Do it with humility. Well, it, it, do it in submission. First, uh, so be intentional, do it in submission. Uh, Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do it with humility. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So practically, how do we all do this? Realistically, I can't tell all of you how to do that. It's going to look varied. We don't have a one-size-fits-all for discipleship. We have principles. We have a goal. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do. And I normally don't do this. I usually don't give you a, a specific thing to try, but this is what I'm going to ask you to do. This week, I want you to have one intentional conversation with another member of this body and ask them, how am I doing in discipling others? How am I doing in being discipled? Do a self-evaluation with another person in the body. And, And let me just tell you this, spoiler alert, that's discipleship. You're doing it right then. Try that. Come up with a plan. How can we do this better? How do we take ownership of the body? This is how the church protects us through discipleship. We build each other up. We wear the armor. We encourage one another. But then how do we protect the church? Because in an ideal world, we're all going to do this so well. Because when we're talking about discipleship, we're talking about a preventative, preventative measures. We're talking about putting the armor on before the battle. It's the preventative medicine that keeps you healthy. That's what the normal expectation for us to do is discipleship. But let's be, a re- be realistic. Does the enemy still sneak in? does the sickness still infect the body it does so what do we do when sin appears the next category of how we protect the church which is under the umbrella of discipleship is discipline discipline is our response to when sin has infected the body discipline is taking sin seriously why is this so important because in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, address, Paul addresses a deep sin that is within the Corinthian church, but they haven't addressed it. And this is the warning he gives them. Your boasting is not good. They think, hey, look, we're okay. It's okay that this is happening here. Look at us. We're, we're, we're all inclusive. We allow them to be here. And he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. No, this is not good. This is going to infect all of you. Sin is never contained if it's unaddressed. So how is it done? sin is so serious god tells them he gives them the tools don't leave sin unaddressed the process begins when we see a brother or sister in sin we say something this is galatians 6 1 brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted sin is dangerous we address their sin intentionally. The same principles for discipleship apply to discipline. We address the sin intentionally. We address the sin towards Christ, through Christ. We address sin out of love. We address sin humbly. We don't say, how dare you? We understand, hey, uh, for, but for the grace of God, I would be in the same position. Come back to Jesus. If they listen, that's it. The process is done. They have been restored. Praise God. If they don't listen, we take the next steps until if there is no evidence of repentance, and not at repentance in words, but repentance meaning turning away from the sin. If there is no repentance, then we put them out of the congregation. Now here's a few confusions we have with this first of all the entire process of matthew 18 is the process of discipline discipline is not just putting someone out of the church that's the final step when necessary discipline is beginning when we address the sin there are many ways in which discipline happens it's a process it's not just a result second what we are doing when someone is put out of the church is removing the affirmation of their salvation that we have given before. We talked about this before that the church, one of the roles of the church is to affirm salvation. It's to say, we recognize your salvation. We do that when we baptize people. We do them when we invite them to the table of the Lord's Supper. We do that when we allow them to participate in the different various functions within the body. But if they are no longer walking in a way that is conducive with the Lord, where we do not think their faith is genuine, we don't want to keep affirming something we don't see as true. Why? Because they would be going to hell. We want to remove that to warn them. If someone is not demonstrating the evidence of salvation, we need to remove the affirmation. Here's why. Here's some reasons for for discipline. Discipline protects the individual. It warns them that the sin is serious. It also protects members individually, the people who are observing to say, listen, we take this seriously, so should you. It protects the body because there are wolves in sheep's clothing who want to destroy, who creep in. uh, 2 Timothy talks about this. Among you, there are those who are taking weak women and they are destroying them, destroying families. We need to protect the body but it also protects our testimony. This is what 1 Corinthians 5 is all about. When 1 Corinthians 5, there is an egregious sin that must be addressed because even the world is looking and saying, you call that being transformed by Christ? The other confusion is that often we're like, this doesn't make any sense. You're saying that these people need Jesus. They don't have Jesus and now you're telling them to get out of here? and you're removing Jesus from them? Now, let me just explain this. Sometimes that is necessary, but generally, we want people who are disciplined still here because they need the truth of the gospel. We want them, we're going to treat them not as a brother, but as a Gentile, a tax collector, meaning someone who is outside, but we still want them inside here. They're just not in the church anymore we don't treat them that way but we want them to still hear the truth of the gospel because that's what they need there are some exceptions first corinthians 5 I, I said earlier that matthew 18 is the general process we follow but there are times in which that process is trumped when 1 corinthians 5 is necessary in 1 corinthians 5 the sin is so egregious that it is so awful that even the world is looking at it. It's not just a matter of a time in which someone is not repenting. It is a sin in which we would say we, we, we cannot affirm the salvation of someone who would do that. And there are circumstances like that in which someone would be put out of our church and no longer welcome here in order to protect the body. There are times where that is necessary and it is hard. But God says, and Paul even says, hand them over to Satan. Remove the umbrella of protection. Let them feel the casualties of war so that they can come back in repentance. Here's the takeaway with discipline because this is something that our church has encountered and will encounter as we take sin seriously. Our church is not immune to casualties. Here's what you need to do one, understand that this is a process that at times we will need to take. It will be hard, it will be painful, but it is for good. Second, you need to be part of that process. When you see sin, treat it seriously. Address the sin intentionally, towards Christ, through Christ, out of love, with humility, but deal with it. Go and address the sin. It is for their protection. We have a powerful enemy in the midst of this violent war as we are surrounded by harrowing and heartbreaking casualties. But we have protection. The question is, will we embrace our protection? Will we grasp the hands of those beside us who seek to strengthen us? Will we sacrificially shield those who are weak? Will we stand next to those in the midst of tremendous opposition? Or will we dismiss and discard the protection we are offered? While we stand as a lone island before the power of the tidal wave of the prince of the power of this air, will we watch our brothers and sisters as they are overwhelmed by the sins that beseech them, justifying our sin of abandonment on the altars of convenience and personal comfort? Brothers and sisters, we're in a war. We must protect the body. Prepare yourself for battle as a means of preparing yourself for glory. Glory. Do that by intentionally seeking relationships within the body in which you are edified and at the same time in which you are edifying. This doesn't just happen. No one just happens to protect themselves in a war. It takes intentionality and responsibility. May we all rise and put our armor on. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christ's victory is guaranteed in him. The war is won for now may we as a body put on our armor and fight the war. We're going to sing a new song um, for us, and we'll sing the first verse twice in order for us to learn it together. But this song is really so applicable in light of what we've just uh, seen. So let's stand and sing this song together.